Hey there, Pastor Mark here. It's our prayer that this message would encourage and equip you in your relationship with Jesus. We're able to provide this content due to the joyful generosity of our financial partners. And if you'd be willing to join that tribe and help get some sermons like this around the world, you can donate at harvestbaptist.info slash give. God bless. Last week, we left this off with chapter 12 and this dragon who was introduced to us. This dragon had a positive ID. The ID was that the dragon was the devil. Remember that? The devil, Satan himself, and that this dragon, when we left the chapter, is wanting to make war with the people who have the testimony of Jesus and is wanting to basically exterminate them. Chapter 13 begins to tell a little bit more of the story and how specifically he might do this. And what you find in chapter 13 is that there are two uh, avenues that the devil uses, two agents, if you will, that he will work through in order to accomplish his purposes and to try to stamp out those who love the Lord Jesus. And we see in chapter number 13, these two beasts, beast one and beast two, not to be confused with thing one and thing two from Dr. Seuss. Uh, there's these two beasts though that, that come up. One is the sea monster and one is this earth monster. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any like Loch Ness or Bigfoot connections in, in the text or not. I've been looking for them, but I haven't been able to find them yet. But there's these two beasts and we get to learn about both of them. Today, we're gonna look at beast number one. Uh, next time we're together, we'll look at beast number two. That actually, not to tease you, but that's the part of Revelation where you get the mark of the beast and 666 and these things that kind of dominate headlines and, and lure people in. What is that again? Uh, we'll get to that next time we're together. But today, we're gonna look at beast number one. And I just wanna start with the pedigree of this beast. And here are the first two verses, Revelation 13. I stood upon the sand of the sea, this is John speaking, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. And listen to this description, it'll make your head spin. Having seven heads and 10 horns, and upon his horns, 10 crowns, upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So there's three things to observe just real quick on the, on the pedigree of this beast. First is there's a family likeness. It tells you in verse number one that here's the beast and it says that he has seven heads and 10 horns. And you may think to yourself, well, that's not a description I hear of a beast every day, right? But it is something that you've heard every week for the past two weeks because we read this in chapter 12, if you remember. We were introduced to the devil and the description that was given uh, that is certainly symbolism of the devil, but the description that was given in chapter 12, verse number three, was there was a great red dragon having, quote, seven heads and 10 horns. And part of what this is trying to communicate immediately is like father, like son. <laughs> that this beast is immediately associated with, with Satan. You see that in chapter two, that the dragon gives him his power and begins to satanically motivate him. You'll see this through the rest of the chapter, but there is this immediate connection. If you're wondering, is the beast a good beast or a bad beast or what's happening here? A bad is the answer, okay? There's also this family lineage. Verse number two tells us, the beast was like a leopard. He had feet like a bear, mouth like a lion, and he also has seven heads and 10 horns. And if you're trying to picture that or like, how would I draw that? You know, that, that can get pretty trippy. 
And if you're unfamiliar with Old Testament prophecy, you may get to verse number two and think to yourself like, this is why I don't read this book. Like this is, there's these descriptions and there's the leopards and lions and bears and heads and horns and, and what are we talking about here? But this is a very, very helpful verse. If you are familiar with Old Testament prophecy, you may have in the back of your head something going off saying like, that sounds familiar. And you would be right. One of the most detailed prophecies in all of the Bible is in Daniel chapter number seven, where Daniel says, I saw some beasts coming out of the sea, which sounds kind of familiar to verse one. And he says, there's four beasts. And he says, here are the four beasts. There's a, a lion, and then there's a bear, and then there's a, you probably guessed it, a leopard, right? Lion, bear, leopard in the text. And then the fourth beast has 10 horns. And it all sounds like, markedly similar to what Daniel wrote in Daniel chapter number seven. And that's the point. And Daniel says very clearly that all four of those beasts, whether you're talking about the leopard or the lion or the bear, that they're all symbols and they're symbols of kingdoms. They're symbols of world superpowers. They're symbols of empires. They're symbols of political governments. You will furthermore, you will reinforce this when you begin to understand what the 10 horns are. The 10 horns, once again, are symbols. And I'm not saying they're symbols just for the fun of it, like I made it up. It's what Daniel and John both say. Daniel says in his prophecy, quote, the 10 horns are 10 kings. Actually, I can understand that, okay? Thank you for telling me what the symbol means. John will say this actually later in Revelation 17. He'll say the same thing. The 10 horns which thou sawest are 10 kings. And what this is speaking of is, and let me just bottom line it for you. This is saying that the beast is not a lone ranger. The beast is satanically empowered. His daddy is the devil. And he's not a YouTuber who makes his own little platform and does his own little thing and tries to create some sort of system that he can operate within. He is in fact leveraging the power of the state. There is a political power at play here. As a matter of fact, there's a confederacy of 10 states that says that these 10 kings happen and there's one king who will be the puppet master and will, and will mess with this confederacy. So this is saying that the beast is, is both a person and a political war machine. That this beast would be similar to maybe what you would think of in a Hitler. Hitler was a person, but Hitler was a head of state who pushed forward a Nazi war machine that that is the description of the beast. And I know that's a little tough to untangle, but he's saying the, the, it looks like the devil because that's his daddy. His lineage comes from a political system. This is how he will operate in a confederacy of nations that will come together. But he also goes on to say a little bit about his family legacy. Now, let me stop for a moment before I cover that and just point something out. I think that even the first two chapters or first two verses of Revelation 13 speak to the wonderful unity and beauty of the scriptures. What you have, and I, I gave you the cliff note version. If you wanna go read Daniel 7 and study it more, knock yourself out. But what you have is Daniel and John, 600 years apart from each other. They lived on different continents. They wrote in different languages. Daniel and John fitting together like a glove and 
forming a beautiful, cohesive whole when it comes to prophecy from the Old Testament and prophecy from the New Testament fitting together. And you say, why is that so amazing? Because they're 600 years apart. And they don't have email, right? There's, there's not modern communication. They live in a day and age where to even have something written on anything, like a physical copy of anything, was so rare. But they, they correspond with each other. And that is a, a brief window into the Bible as a whole. Because the Bible as a whole is a book, yeah. But the Bible is 66 books, right? Written by like 40 different authors over the span of 1,600 years on three different continents and 13 different countries with three different languages. And the Bible as a whole fits together as a cohesive unit. And when you put it all together, what you find is that there's one hero in the Bible, that's Jesus. There's one villain in the Bible, that's Satan. There's, there's one aim of the Bible, the, the redemption of man, and there's one purpose to the Bible, which is the glory of God, that all of it from beginning to end, no matter if you read Job or if you read Moses or if you read Paul or you read Luke, all of it fits together in this cohesive whole. I have, I read this years and years ago and it's always stuck in the back of my brain and I use it often. I was even uh, uh, talking with, with some people this week and this, this popped in my mind and it probably flowed into my sermon because of that. But let's suppose that Pennsylvania said, we want to uh, erect a statue that is going to just tell how much we appreciate the United States of America. And we're a state, yeah, we're not, we're not the federal government, but we wanna do something that says we're all, we're all part of this, the same nation and, and try to get the states together. So Pennsylvania told every state in the nation, look, could you ship us some stone from your state and we're gonna take it and we're gonna make a statue out of it that's gonna be beautiful and awesome. People are gonna come from all over. They're gonna wanna see this just to say how awesome you know, America is. And so we, we contacted uh, Florida and said, send us some coral stone. And we contacted Nevada and we said, send us some sandstone. And then we got some limestone and we got from every state, they all wanted to send us stone. And they went to the quarry, they cut it and they sent us the stone. And when it arrived in Pennsylvania, we said, get it to us by June of 2024, it arrived. And all the pieces fit together, almost like Legos or something. They all fit together beautifully. And it formed this 50 foot tall eagle with its wings spread out and this marvelous statue, all, all the stones fit together. Now you would say, okay, great, beautiful, wonderful, whatever. But logic dictates this. If that happens, there, there must be some sort of master designer on top of that project. There's no way that Florida is cutting the stone to whatever specifications they feel like, and Nevada's cutting it to whatever specifications they feel like, and all the other states are doing the same, and that it comes together, and it just somehow fits together and makes this beautiful, cohesive whole. There's no way. There has to be someone superintending the project that says, Florida, cut it this way, and Nevada, here's the specs, and Hawaii, here's the specs. There has to be someone on top of it, right? When you, the point is, when you come to the Bible, and you got 40 authors over 1,600 years, most of whom have no communication with each other in three different languages and three different continents and 13 different countries, and all of it fits together as a cohesive whole, you have to step back and say, logic dictates there must be a designer on top of this. 
This book doesn't naturally just fit together on its own. That's not going to happen. And the only architect who's going to span 1,600 years in all the languages and all the countries is not a human architect. The architect is going to be none other than God himself, right? And this is part of what makes the Bible so unique and sets it apart from any other book and puts it in a category unto itself. This is why when you compare the Bible to say the Book of Mormon and Mormons want to elevate the Book of Mormon to the same playing field, it, it don't work out. You got one book written by one dude and it doesn't agree with itself a lot of the time and archeology span has never backed it up. That those are not the same, right? And this is a, a part where you may not know it at first. You may not know it at first, but when you read verse one and you read verse two of Revelation 13, it, it honestly screams into the cohesive nature and the unity of the scriptures and that it all fits together. So his daddy's the devil, that's the beast. His lineage is that of political power and using the state to bully. And then it tells us that there's his family legacy. Verse one, what's his legacy? Blasphemy is written on his head. You'll see more of this later as we work through the text. But the banner over this beast is blasphemy, profaning the name of God and impugning the character of God. That's what he's after. That's his MO. What's it say in, in verse number two? The dragon gave him his power and his seat and his great authority. His legacy is position, power, and authority that is satanically empowered so that he may blaspheme God. Now it goes on to tell you in verse number three that there is this popularity that befalls the beast for a specific reason. It says in verse three, I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. So what's happening here? Well, quite simply, there's some sort of knockoff resurrection, right? There's some sort of counterfeit resurrection that's taking place and it's this this parody of what God the Father did in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at some point in time, there'll be a fatal wound of some sort that comes and there will be healing. There will be some sort of dramatic restoration or resurrection. And it will be a master stroke of Satan to cause the world to wonder and to want to marvel at and to want to give their allegiance to and say, this is a special person. What, we need to buy what he's selling. I mean, this, this is it's a whole other category. This, this doesn't happen every day. We should, we should hitch ourselves, our wagon to him. And this will be empowered in a, in a very uh, miraculous way. And we'll see later on in the text that there are more miracles that, that are performed, but the whole world begins to take note and pay attention to this leader. And then it begins to tell you what the purpose is of this leader is. And there's a five-fold, like five-pronged attack here that says, here are the purposes. Here's why this beast will exist. And I want you to get them one by one. First, it tells you, this one will deify Satan. Verse number four, they worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. They worship the beast saying, who's like the beast? Who's able to make war with him? which is kind of a natural question. He just got a fatal wound, but that didn't kill him. How, how are you gonna make war with him and kill him, right? Natural question. But what happens? They begin to worship not just the beast, but the one who empowers the beast. They begin to, frankly, worship the devil. That's the goal. 
The goal is not more political party members. The goal is not to get a confederacy of 10 kings to grow to 20 kings. The goal is not so that this person can have Instagram followers and Facebook friends. The goal is not wealth and riches. The goal is worship. The goal is to lead people to worship Satan and to give their allegiance to him. And there is this this cosmic bootlegging that happens with this beast where he will act like the real thing, but will insist that people worship the creature more than the creator. Then it goes on to tell you that not only will he deify Satan, but he will defy the savior. Verse number five. And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. We already saw that in verse one, remember? Power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. And he opened his mouth and he in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. Now you can see why John in his epistle, John wrote a gospel, some epistles and revelation. He has a lot of books. You can see why in his second epistle, John would refer to this one as quote, the antichrist, which is oftentimes the name that we slap on this beast, which is fitting. Why would you use that name? Well, anti against Christ because it's the goal to be against Jesus, to be against the Father, and to lead people astray. It's the goal to, what it says, blaspheme the name. To lead people away. Chapter 12, remember? What does the dragon want to do? Wants to destroy Jesus. Wants to destroy his offspring. Wants to, wants to kill them. The devil doesn't like Jesus, Period. If, if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, that may have been a newsflash. For the rest of you, you probably were like, thanks, pastor. I learned something new today. He doesn't, like, he doesn't like the people that belong to Jesus. He's against, he's anti-Jesus. And this text says as much. And he uses people, whether it's a Pharaoh or whether it's Herod or whether it's Haman or whether it's this beast and this antichrist, he uses people. But I would be quick to note that anti can also mean in the place of. It can mean against Jesus. It can also mean in the place of Jesus. And that's a little more seductive, excuse me, for Christian people. And I think part of the reason why John in his first epistle warns Christians stoutly that there is a antichrist, but the spirit of antichrist has come into our world. And he says, beware, keep your head on a swivel, Right? How does the spirit of Antichrist come? Is that normally from from pastors and preachers and theologians who stand up and say, I'm against Jesus? Nope. It comes from those who will put themselves in the place of Jesus, which is a little more sneaky. And I've, I've seen a number of pastors who unwittingly do this, or sometimes they overtly do this, but they make it to where like church is about them and basically put me on a pedestal and look at me and worship me and, and give me your loyalty and follow me and uh, it's, it's all about me. You ever seen that? And in church where all of a sudden the pastor elevates himself just a little bit too high, all of a sudden where the pastor presents himself as a little bit too perfect and everything is good and everything's great and there's, and there's no mistakes there, receives the praise a little too readily Want, wants the attention a little too naturally 
And what can happen? What can happen is people start to put their allegiance to the pastor. And, and they, they don't necessarily mean all the time to take it away from Jesus, but it can distract and they can, they can affix it to a man instead of Jesus. And that's not fitting. There's a place for pastors. Peter's will, Peter will tell us this. He'll tell us that pastors exist and they should feed the flock of God and they should lead the flock of God, but they don't lead the flock of God by constraint and twisting people's arms behind their back. And they do not make themselves lords over God's heritage because they're not the Lord. And they are a shepherd, but there is a chief shepherd, right? And it's easy for people to say, okay, I, I have my loyalty to pastor. You know what? I believe this because pastor said, look, I'll do my best to give you the word straight up, but please don't say that ever. We believe this because the Bible says, and I want to represent it accurately, but everybody has different, you know, preferences. And I'll, try, I'll do my best to tell you, hey, this is my opinion, this is speculation. You know, I wouldn't take a bullet for this. This isn't Bible, but maybe this is could, how it could work out. But you don't take those things and elevate them to the word of God. You don't take speculation and preferences and opinions and act as though it's God's word. If, if God needs to write another book of the Bible, then, then maybe he'll sign me up for it. But I'm betting on probably not anytime soon. Probably not never. I'm not infallible, right? You don't give your loyalty to me. You don't give your loyalty to Pastor Joe or to Pastor Dom or any of our pastors. You give your loyalty to Jesus. That's who gets the loyalty. And this is always made abundantly clear when a pastor falls. And by God's grace, I hope that it's not me or any of our other pastors. But if and when that happens in a church, oftentimes other people fall too. And, it's, and it becomes immediately clear they didn't have the loyalty to Jesus. They had the loyalty to a man. They put too much stock in that guy and not enough stock in Jesus. Don't make that mistake. What is that? That's a spirit of antichrist. That's a spirit of replacing Christ. And ultimately that's against Christ. You don't do that. But this is what the beast will do. The beast will seek to deify Satan and to defy the savior. You also find that the beast is going to destroy the saints. It mentions this uh, there at the end of verse number six, this 42 months. And we keep seeing this as we examine this portion of scripture. We keep seeing 42 months, three and a half years, 42 months, three and a half years, 1,260 days, which is the same as 42 months and three and a half years. We keep seeing this. This little time period that is short, but will probably feel like forever for those that are in it. This little time period of three and a half years where according to the Bible, the first three and a half years, the Antichrist will serve as a peacemaker and the back three and a half years, he will serve as a peace taker. And he will begin to want to destroy the saints. Verse seven says it very clearly. It tells you in verse number seven, it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Satan has always wanted to do as much harm to God and his purposes and his people as possible. Bank on that. We saw it last chapter and we see it this chapter that the beast is characterized by unrighteous behavior, but he's also characterized by violent actions. His goal is to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he is not friendly and he is not fair and he is not docile. 
That doesn't exist. He wants to stamp out the people that believe in God. He wants to make martyrs. It will be an unbelievable time of persecution as war is made with the saints. And then it tells you at the end of the verse that he wants to dominate society. It's not enough that there's a confederation of, of 10 nations. It goes on to tell you in verse number seven that power was given unto him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, meaning he wants his influence to increase and to expand. He wants more and more people to declare allegiance to him. And then in verse number eight, he will deceive sinners. All that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So there will not be five camps. There will not be 10 camps. There will not be three camps. There will be two camps. Those that have their allegiances to Jesus, who he wants to destroy, and those that have their allegiances to him and, and will worship. That's it. You say, pastor, that sounds like bad news bears. Yep. You have anything encouraging? Yeah, I do. Let's keep reading. Verse number nine. If any man have an ear, let him hear. Now that's interesting to me. That jumps off the page to me. Because if you remember, we saw this in chapter two and chapter three, that there'd be this instruction that was given to the churches and then it would end. If any man have an ear, let him hear what the spirit says unto the churches. And there was always this encouraging word that followed it. Now, it doesn't have the phrase, what the spirit says unto the churches. And some have looked at that and said, well, that's probably because the churches are gone and they've been raptured. The church is no longer there. And I would agree with that. But the point is that it's, it's, he's about to interrupt the story and give you a note that you need to hang on to. If you got an ear, here, listen up. There's a piece of information coming that you need to know. There's a piece of encouragement coming that you need to hang on to. Here it is, verse number 10. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with a sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. What does that mean? Because he's gonna switch gears in, in verse 11 and start to tell you about the second beast. But verse 10 is what you need to hang on to right now. He that locks them away in prison, makes them captive, will be locked away in prison. He that kills will be killed. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So pastor, help me out, help me understand that. What he's saying in a nutshell is there will be poetic justice. It's going to be hard it's not going to be pretty. There's going to be an extreme measure of what one may call success. People are going to follow the Antichrist. People are going to worship him. People are going to put their allegiances to him. Those who claim the name of Jesus will be persecuted and they will suffer. And you're like, bad, 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 bad news over and over again. But the one who is wanting to go lock people up and persecute them, it's coming to them. The one who's leading to kill, so you're talking about Satan and his minions, certainly you're talking about the Antichrist, you're also talking about uh, even humans who follow that, that there will be poetic justice in the end. So Christian, be patient, endure, keep going, don't quit, have faith. Keep your eyes on God. Don't think he's deserted you. 
Don't in these moments where the going gets tough, think that God's nowhere to be found. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Don't quit. Understand that God will be just in the end. And God gives both a warning to those who would hitch their wagon to the Antichrist and a note of encouragement to those who will not. And this is something that I think we need. Because it may not be exactly this context, but all of us have moments where inside, whether we express it or not, inside, deep down, we feel like, God, I'm not getting it. God, it seems like the wicked are flourishing. God, it seems like the dominoes are not falling in a way that I think that they should. What do you do in those moments? Patience and faith is what you do in those moments. I'm reminded of Asaph. Asaph is an author of several Psalms. And most of Asaph's Psalms are very raw. Asaph will write his true heart and his true emotions on the page and it's recorded for us in, in scripture. He will even write really theologically inaccurate stuff. Not to say this is true, but this is just how I feel right now. And I think that this is what's happening here in this moment where God's saying, you're gonna be tempted to think that I've taken my hands off the steering wheel and I've, and I've jumped ship and I'm telling you, I haven't. Keep your faith in me, keep your eyes on me, keep enduring and keep going. Now I wanna read for you, and if you would turn with me, humor me, turn to Psalm 82. I wanna read five verses of one of Asaph's Psalms. And you tell me if, if this doesn't ring a bell for you. This was written a long time ago. But you tell me if this doesn't remind you of how you feel sometimes. Psalm 82. Look, if you would, in verse number one, right in the middle of, of the Bible there, Psalm 82. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, the false gods. And here's what Asaph says. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah, I'm gonna stop and think about that one for a minute. I'm, I'm just gonna pause right there. You know what he says? God, you messed it up. Your judgments aren't just. I don't like it. I don't think it's fair. I think you're making the wrong call. Your judgments are not accurate. God, the wicked are flourishing. How long are you gonna accept the people of the wicked? When are you gonna get them? God, it don't make sense to me. I'm on your team. I'm trying to serve you. And everywhere I turn, it seems like you're accepting the wicked and the wicked are prospering and I'm not. You ever been there? God, I went to work, I showed up, I, I worked with integrity, I was honest, I was diligent, I was consistent, and my counterpart, my peer over there at work, they were manipulative, and they were deceptive, and they lied to the customers, and they're stinking climbing the ladder. What? This don't make sense to me, God. How is it that I'm doing it the right way and it seems like I'm stuck in neutral and I have the same paycheck for 10 years in a row and they are, they're, they're being wicked, they're, they're sinning, they're evil and, and they, are, they just keep going up and up and up and now they're my boss. Explain that one to me, Lord. Ever been there? God, I got two kids, 
Both are teenagers and I am trying my best to lead them. I am trying my best to give them what the Bible says and show them your word and show them you. And it seems like I can't get their ear for the life of me right now. Then there's this little 25 year old on TikTok who has 2 million teenage followers and everything they say, the teenagers listen to them and they say some pretty evil junk. They say this and this and millions of teenagers listen to them. I can't get two of my own teenagers in my own house to listen to me and I'm trying to do it the right way. What's up with that, God? Ever think that way? I do sometimes. Like this doesn't seem right. This doesn't seem fair. We're trying to do it the right way and it seems like we're stuck in neutral. Meanwhile, it seems like the wicked flourish and they go on. God, my husband loved you, wanted to serve you, wanted, wanted to take our family to church and he's 52 years old and he dies. Meanwhile, there's a sex trafficker who's 70 years old and still operating. Kill that guy. Like these are things that go through my head sometimes. Like it just makes a lot of sense if this would work out here for the people that love you and are serving you and for the people that hate you and are against you that maybe they will get their just desserts. But oftentimes it doesn't go that way. And Asaph points it out and says, God, I don't like this. And God, I feel like it's unjust and you're letting them go. Verse number three, so God, defend the poor, defend the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of suffering. See what he's saying? Innocent people are suffering. Do something, God. Come on. You say, I don't think he had that heartbeat. Yeah, he did. He is letting it fly. Verse number five, it gets worse. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk in darkness. God, these people aren't changing their ways. They don't even get it. They're gonna continue to walk in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. Here's what he's saying. I hate to be blunt, but here's what he just said. God, the whole world is screwed up and you messed it up and, and you're missing the boat. That's what he's saying. This, they're, they're not gonna change their ways. Get with the program. Now, is Asaph theologically accurate in this moment? No. It is never okay to point your finger at God and say you're unjust because he's not unjust. Or to say, you, you lose your watch, God, you need to borrow my phone. Look what time it is, about time you showed up. That's, it's never okay to impugn the character of God. But this is a moment in Psalms where Asaph is letting it go and God is honest enough to record it for us and say, this guy felt this way. And I'm thankful that he lets us know this guy felt this way because sometimes in my humanity, I feel that way too. Where it just doesn't make sense. And it seems as though, it seems as though the wicked are flourishing. Lord, all at once, like one kid. We've been trying and trying and trying. Meanwhile, she's given up her four kids and uses drugs while she's pregnant and she has a fifth child on the way? Come on. Like that's human, right? That's human to think that way. And God in his grace and in his wisdom says, Here's, here's what's happening. This is gonna be nasty. It's gonna seem like the devil's winning. But if you have an ear, listen up. Hear this. Poetic justice will come one day. If you think the wicked are flourishing, you may be right. But I'm telling you, that flourishing won't last forever. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, if they're throwing you in prison, captivity is gonna come to them. If they're killing you with a sword, 
Killing's gonna come their way. And I'm here to tell you what you need to do as a Christian is have patience and have faith. Keep going, don't quit. Endure. I know it's hard. I know, I, know, I know that you feel like you're suffering. I know the circumstances don't seem right. I know that you would have written the script differently. I know it, but keep going and have faith. Don't doubt me. Don't impugn my character. Don't think that I'm, that I'm not involved or that somehow I'm capricious or I'm against you. No, have faith in me. Keep walking. Stay steady. Endure and have, have patience and have faith. That's what he says. And that's a message that I think all of us need. No matter if you're living in Asaph's day or if you're living in 2023 or if you're living in the future, whatever this may be, with, with the Antichrist and this beast, no matter when it is, that's a message we need. And my goal on this is not to give you a bunch of information so you can better understand how the future may unfold. That's part of it. But my real goal is to encourage you, patience and faith. Patience and faith. Don't quit. Keep your eyes on him. But pastor, you don't understand. I'd, it's tough to trust him right now. I know. I know. But trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. But I don't like the ways he's directing me. I know. But have faith. And know, you have to know. The only way you can really hold on to that is if you know that you know that you know that in the end, he'll make it all right. In the end, they, whoever the evil they are, are not getting away with anything. They're storing up everything. And know that in the end, kept captivity will be captive. Know that in the end, those that kill will be killed. Know that God will sort it out and he will be fair and he will be just and you can trust in his character and bank on that. Know that in the end, I'm gonna leave you with this. Know that the enemies of God will be destroyed and know that God will win. There's a million ways I could apply that to your life. We could look at sin, we could look at death, we could look at evil agendas in this world, but know that in the end, the enemies of God will be destroyed, God will win, and he will be just, he'll sort it all out.